The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace-Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here is our speaker. <laughs> we're not taking the hint, are we? Father, we're thankful for the evening, thankful for the time of fellowship around the table, for the food you provided, but mostly for the fellowship. We enjoy that. And now as we look at your word, we're thankful for your word, that we can read it and understand what your uh, plans are for us, the things that your son was concerned about as he uh, returned to you and uh, uh, your disciples and um, those of us that have believed in their word have remained behind. And we ask that you'd help us to appreciate these things even more. Amen. Um, I want to, we're going to go to John chapter 17. Um, last week we covered, <clears throat> last week we covered verses 20 and 21. And there's just one thing, when I was rereading through this, um, it's, uh, it's amazing how many times you can go through something and then something catches you. And so we're going to go to verse 21, and I just want to look at this one statement and just want to kind of fill in a little detail that may or may not be helpful for you. We'll see. 21. But in verse 21, John 17, 21, it says, In order that they all might be one thing, and the reason we keep saying is one thing is that the word one is neuter, that they might be one thing, even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also might be one thing in us. And some of your Bibles just have one in us, or might be in us, but or one thing. But it's that, that statement in there where he says that they might be one thing, and then he compares that to you, Father, being in me, and I in you. And he makes this statement, the other place he makes this statement earlier, that makes it like uh, four times, but turn back to chapter 10. Turn back to John chapter 10. <clears throat> When we get back there, we're going to go to verse um, 38. He's encouraging these people to believe in him because of the works that he's doing. Verse 38, but if I do, if I do do those works, uh, even if you do not believe me or believe in me, then believe the works that you might know and go on knowing that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So this is the... This is the first place he actually makes this statement. But that statement goes back to verse 30, where he says, I and the Father are one thing. They're one essence. So when he's talking about he being in the Father and the Father being in him, in that relationship that he's talking about, he's talking about the fact that they have one single shared essence. Okay, One single shared divine essence. Go back to John chapter 17 when he asks in verse 21 that we all might be one thing. Well, there's a certain sense that we all have one shared essence. That is, we all share what it means to be part of the body. We're all part of the body of Christ. We are. And the body of Christ is not, uh, listen to Kevin Jeffries make this statement, the body of Christ is not part Mexican, part white, part black. No, it's just all one. Because we're all together and whatever our earthly identity is, it's God in Christ. And we are this one thing now uh, in them. So that's an in Christ relationship. That's what that's talking about here in verse 21. That this is what we are in Christ and it's that oneness. And we talked about that last week. 
in order that the world might believe that you sent me. Now there was um, something that went with this, and I came across this um, this last week when I was uh, reading some other uh, passage of scripture, and, and this occurred to me. So I want you to go to Acts chapter two. I want to look at three verses here in Acts that I think demonstrate that that at least in part Jesus's request was answered with the early church right off the bat in Acts chapter 2 and we're going to go to verse 43 just to kind of read all of this together verse 43 it says and um, Acts chapter 2 verse 43 and awe came upon everyone or fear came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles all who believed to were together and they had all things common right there that's part of this they really were functioning god didn't command them to do this this just happens to be kind of their way of working out what they understood in their relationship at that time but he nowhere tells them they had to do it this way and so they would sell their possessions and goods distribute the proceeds to all as any had need day by day as they spent much time together in the temple they broke bread ate their food with glad and generous hearts and so they're doing this together I hope we all understand uh, what they're doing praising God and here it is and having favor with the, with the whole of the people and the Lord was adding to them daily such as should be saved but that first that second statement verse 47 the first statement is they were they were praising God but they were having favor with all the people in other words even though eventually the large portion of Israel is going to turn against the early church, when they start, they actually, their, their demeanor, their conduct, the way they handle each other, the way they operate together, they don't, there's not hostility among the other people. The other people are looking at this and admiring this and go, this is really something. This was something that really caught their attention, and that word favor in there is the word grace. Now, I don't think as Luke's using it that necessarily he means grace in the way we think of grace, but that's the way they looked at this. Turn with me next over to chapter 4, Acts chapter 4. And this has to do with Peter and John who have healed a man. They've been brought before the, the religious council and talked to, and it says... <clears throat> verse 18 uh, Acts chapter 4 and verse 18 so they called them and ordered them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus but Peter and John answered them whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God you must judge for we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard and after threatening again they let them go finding notice this now no way to punish them because the because of the people for all of them praise God for what had happened now, in this case, it's not that the people are impressed by the church and its relationship, but they're impressed by what Peter and John have done in this case. They, they're attributing it to Peter and John, even though Peter and John try to say, this is us, this is God that has done this thing here. But the point is that he's getting at, when he says this here, is that they didn't want to, the, the council doesn't want to touch him because they're afraid of what the people will do. Because the people do have... We already saw some regard for the church as a whole, but now even more regard for these two men. Last one, chapter 5. Chapter 5 here in Acts. 
and verse 13. Coming down to verse 13. And this is after, if you don't remember what happens in Acts 5, we have the death of Ananias and Sapphira and what happens with them. And the result of the death of Ananias and Sapphira, in verse 13 it says, but the rest, well it's, um, yeah, but the rest, not one of them even dared to associate or cleave themselves with the believers. In other words, um, I, had this, I had this conversation with, uh, with my son-in-law and then also with my daughter because right now they're going to, they're, they're, they've been attending a new church. And one of the things that this church advertises is, come make us your home even if you don't believe in Jesus yet. <laughs> you know, They're trying to make it a pl an environment where these people can come in and kind of find out about Jesus and be okay and be comfortable. And I don't think that, you know, you and I would agree. We don't have to stand at the door and go, tell me what the gospel is. Do you believe that? Okay, well, you can come in and have a seat. We, we're not going to check people like that at the door. And even if we find out they're not believer, we're not going to do everything we can in our power to run them off. But sometimes something happens that makes people go, I don't know if I want to be here. Okay. Well, I mean, they have to hear somewhere, but it's not set up necessarily here at church. It's set up to hear by evangelists and then come to church. This church is for more truth. So that doesn't, now that I'm saying it, that sounds wrong too. So no, no, no. <laughs> Th this is exactly what I, what both, well, we had this conversation I had with both of them. And they agree. Evangelism, most of it goes on out there in the world. They're the people you rub elbows with. They're the people that you know. They're the people that I meet out there. Most of it doesn't happen inside the meeting of believers okay that's not the way god intended evangelism to be but notice what goes on now i kind of digressed with verse 13 but the rest of them did not dare to cleave to them but they were exalt but the people were exalting them that is even at this point even with the death of these two people that is kind of scared off or frightened off these the unbelievers from from hanging out there at church, you know, hey, something's exciting's happening, and all these people are hanging out over there, kind of this all exciting thing that's there, and then two people drop dead because they lied to God, to the Holy Spirit, and now these other people go, well, I don't know if we want to be here, so they leave, but they still are exalting the people. They're still holding the people in greatness, which right there shows you they, they don't really understand what's going on if they're holding the people in that high regard. But this is the point of these two verses, and I think even that middle verse in, in John 14 or, and uh, Acts 4, verse 21, if you go back over to John 17, this is the point as we go back there. When Jesus asked that they might all be one, that the world might believe, one of the things that's happening here in these early days of the early church is that there were people in the world that looked at it and they did held, hold this in, in, in admiration. And it was something that really caught their interest. Now, the thing is, did that win everybody to Christ? No, didn't win everybody to Christ. In fact, it's, Luke tells us God was adding to the church daily such as it should be saved. So that's God's work. Okay. But I'm just that just it was a, a couple of details here, and uh, with verse 21 that kind of filled in. wasn't even working on trying to fill them in, and then I just was reading other stuff uh, in scripture, and some things popped in there. That brings us into verse 22 tonight. Verse 22 says, <clears throat> "And the glory that you have given to me, 
I have given to them in order that they might be, again, one thing, just as we are one thing. Okay. Now, it sounds like he's talking about exactly the same thing we just had in the previous verse. But notice what he says in verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they might be perfected or matured into one thing in order that the world might know that you sent me and you love them just like you love me. So what does he mean in verse 22? We're talking about, we're talking about glory right now on Sunday mornings. And there's a lot of different ways that God's glory, that his, his opinion or his reputation can be expressed by what God does. But what was the thing when he says here in verse 22, the glory which you've given to me, I've given to them. What glory is that? What glory had the Father given to the Son? Let's go over to John chapter 5. Maybe one of you raised your hand or was going to say something, but I didn't hear anybody. So, John chapter 5, when he talks about this glory. John chapter 5. <clears throat> Let's go back to verse 24, because this verse is going to connect with another verse we're going to look at before the evening's over. It says, truly, truly, I say to you that the one hearing my word and believing in the one having sent me, this one has. Now, I don't think at that time, even though that's a present tense in the Greek, I don't think he's indicating that that person right now, at that moment in time, has eternal life. We know that because both in Matthew 19 and in Mark 10, which is the same event, he says it's in the coming age that you're going to get eternal life. So he uses a present tense here with the vividness that that promise that you're going to get eternal life is so real, it is so certain that he can talk about it with a present tense. It's just, it, it, again, it tells you that, that when you look at tenses in Greek, you can't just look at them in terms, strictly in terms of time. You've got to look in terms of context and the emphasis uh, that's being brought out so he says he has eternal life and absolutely does not come into judgment but is transferred out of death out of literally the death into the life what would the death be in this context when he says the death what what spiritual death Okay, in contrast to the life, which he just mentioned in the middle of the verse, eternal life. So then he goes... Past. Oh, okay, that's 24. Okay. Um, let, let's go ahead. We'll read verse 25 just for continuity. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you that an hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of Man, and the ones having heard it will live. There are some people that take that in terms of... Um, uh, in terms of salvation, looking to that future time that he's looking to that those that are spiritually dead, they're going to hear the voice of the Son of Man, they're going to live. But I think verse 25 is talking about the resurrection. That's the way I understand it, just to let you know. But verse 26, for just as the Father has life in himself, so also he has given the Son to have life in himself. Uh, Jim was just talking about that. Uh, I was telling Ronnie this earlier. Uh, what Jim covered on Sunday related to a number of things we talked about last Wednesday night, and then some of those things jumped forward into things we're looking at here. 
And he says, the father gave the son. It was, it was the father's will for the son to have eternal life went down, down here. And, and this is, and you and I don't need this, but we're, we're, we're reviewing this fact. You guys all know this. None of you are going to sit here and go, oh, really? But this, but you went into, if you go into a lot of churches and you teach this, they'd go, what? Because what I'm going to say is, this was, an, this was an unusual thing. Jesus Christ is the first human being in the realm of his real human nature to actually have eternal life while he walked on this earth and breathed this air. Nobody, and I believe even including Adam, I don't believe Adam had eternal life. All those people up to, the, up to Jesus himself, there were people that were saved, and I've had people say that. You're saying nobody was saved? I'm just saying, I know, I'm just saying their salvation was different. God gave them something else, and he promised them eternal life for the future, but they didn't get it then. But the problem is, see, most people don't understand eternal life. How do most people define eternal life? Living forever. Living forever, yeah. And yet, do, well, we need to be careful, but let's talk about real, evangelical, genuine Bible-teaching believers that really believe the gospel. Most of them do not believe that when an unsaved person dies that they are annihilated. Wait, they do not? They do not. They do not believe in annihilation. They do not believe in annihilation. Seventh-day Adventists believe in annihilation. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in annihilation. And there are some people that call themselves Christians, most likely are not, I really think, uh, that they, they just can't, they can't handle the doctrine of hell. And even though they don't like the idea of people being annihilated, it's easier to think of those people just being thrown in a fire and burned up like you throw your trash in a burn barrel. They can handle that easier than thinking of those people being in a state of eternal torment. And I'm, you know, and I'll be honest, it's not like I can say the idea of eternal torment is something that, you know, I like to think about, you know. Um, but, uh, no, I'm not going to digress. So the point that he's getting at here uh, it, is that the Father gave me to have eternal life. He manifests that life now. So as he walked about this life down here, he was showing people eternal life. Let's go back to John chapter 17 and look at verse 2. John 17 and verse 2. It's talking about glorify your son even as you gave him authority over all flesh in order that all the, in those that which you have given to them that he might give to them eternal life. So the son actually is giving to these believers eternal life. Now, there's other verses that looks like the Father's the one that gives us eternal life. But what he's actually telling you is the Father gives eternal life by delegating that authority. That's what he says here. He delegates that authority to the Son, and the Son's actually the one that imparts specifically eternal life. And then he says, this is eternal life, that they might experientially know you. You guys are getting double duty on this because Jim again went over this with us on Sunday. This is good. Maybe, maybe one of us here needs to know this better, or we all do but to experientially know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you. So we're talking about this glory again. I glorified you upon the earth, completing the works which you gave me to do. Now, Sunday, during the morning study, we were looking at God's glory. And we were looking in terms of God's glory in, in, the, in the New Testament that it, one of the things that he does is he demonstrates compassion. There's a lot of things he did that demonstrated his glory. 
But when you come to the Gospel of John, and John talks about the works that he did, and John lays emphasis on Christ saying he came to do the works the Father gave him to do. In John, he tells you at the beginning, when they looked and they saw his glory, what did they see? John, how did John describe what they saw? They saw one, special one from the Father, full of? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. That's what they saw. They saw grace and they saw truth. And as we said on Sunday, John expects you to have read the introduction. I, this, this, this is a hint to tell to tell people when they are taking a class and they have a textbook to read, is always read the introduction. A lot of times we skip over, you can skip over a preface. It's usually like, oh, da, 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 they're talking about, I want to thank this person. But an introduction tells you, this is what you're going to be looking at. You're telling them before they ever read the book, this is what it's going to be about, and this is how it's going to be achieved. This is how we're going to accomplish this, generally. And then you go through and read the book, and they, you see all that. Well, that's what John's telling you. He's telling you right off the bat. He could just end it right there. We saw him. He was full of grace and truth, and he could have ended it at that point for that part. But that's his introduction. And now he expects you, having read that, to read through this book and see Jesus demonstrating grace and truth. So when Nicodemus shows up and he says, unless a, unless a man, unless God is with a man, nobody can do these works that you're doing. He's got something he wants to ask, but he's a little afraid to come out and say it. And you know what Jesus does? Jesus exercises truth. He gets to what Nicodemus really should be asking. Or shall we say the question that Nicodemus kind of wants to ask, but he doesn't want, doesn't want to. And he keeps answering the questions that Nicodemus is not asking, but he should be asking. He knows the truth. Meets with the Samaritan woman. He does two things with her. He shows her grace. Because he's, he is a man dealing with a woman, number one. Number two, a man, a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan. Those were two aspects of grace. And on top of that, he expresses truth by interacting with her about her need. And you could go through much of the Gospel of John, and you can see this in the events that he does. Now, the significance of all of that, understanding this, when we're coming into this, he says, I glorified you because what he's doing is, He's coming down here and he is demonstrating what eternal life can look like. Now, you and I don't have omniscience like he has, but we can take the gospel, the, we can take this truth that we have here in the Word of God and we can use that. This is one of the things that we say God's the only heart knower, God's the only knower of hearts. I can't know a person's heart and what's in their head. But you know, I can. Do you know, I can know what's in a person's heart? Because Paul tells us if you're talking to an unsaved person, I don't care how nice they are. I don't care how kind they have been to you. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2 that that person is acting out of selfishness. Just think of yourself as a believer that's been saved. How many times do you find yourself just kind of doing what's, this is what you want to do. This is in your interest. And we act selfishly. And we know better. And we've got a salvation. So there is, to a limited degree, the fact that we can say, God's told us what's in the heart of man. We could look at our own heart, but I actually know what's in the heart of man because of what God tells us. Now, the, the importance of that is you and I have this, uh, this opportunity because we share an eternal life 
that we're able, actually able to know some of the things. Now, there's another thing that we get in addition to eternal life, but I think it's related. I don't think it's an altogether different thing. And flip with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I used to kind of just think that this was an altogether different thing. <clears throat> I'm going to keep this really simple because we could really get wrapped up in what's going on here in 1 Corinthians 2. But basically, he's trying to tell these people that are trying to dabble in the world's methods and motives on how God really gives us truth. And he comes down to the end of this and he says, verse 15, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 15, but the spiritual man discerns or evaluates all things. I'm just going to say this in light of what he says earlier. You know, part of the evaluation of God's truth is that when you're spiritual and the Spirit is putting those things together, you don't look at that, that stuff that God says in there and go, that's good, but I bet I could tweak it like this and make it better. Oh, we would never say those words. But you know, sometimes we do that, don't we? And we totally reinvent this stuff. Tim, so, yes. would you say that that's what happens um, in translations that people think that they could say it in a way that's easier, uh, more modern to understand? I'm sure. I'm sure that happens. Yeah, in the translation process, I've got I've got translations. I like them because I think they kind of give the gist. But I might have somebody that read that and go, I don't think that that's what that verse is about. I think that their translation or the words that they added for clarification mislead people and I've got and I've got translations where I read those things and I think they do mislead you but I've also got places where they've added words and I'm like those added words in my understanding do clarify it's it's you know translation's a tricky thing just put it that way but yeah I, I think that might be a an example thank you so verse 15 the spiritual man evaluates all things he sees the value of what God has his truth but he himself is evaluated by no man and then he says for who has known than the mind of the Lord? Now what he's going back to is a statement from the Old Testament with regard to God's mind, whoever was his counselor, whoever knew his mind. In other words, we should be able to know the mind of the Lord because one thing, we actually have God's revelation, but secondly, the one joined to him, now he says we have Christ's kind of mind. So let's go back to what we looked at Last week we were looking at this side of this. This being put into Christ again and being put into Christ and then we saw that we're also put into the Father. And this connects, if you remember when we looked at this last week, this connects uh, with um, 1 Thessalonians 1.1 and 2 Thessalonians 1.1. And it, it's something that unifies. We also looked at Colossians 2.2 in there. But now we're on this side of it. This this is what Jesus is talking about in 17, 20, and 21. We come over here in John 17 and uh, uh, 22 and 23. He's now talking about this side that we call, and we do this because this is a word that Scripture uses. It's not the totality of it, but it certainly expresses one part of, a key part of this thing. The indwelling of the persons of the God, it causes this regeneration, which take the re off, it's the generation. He generates us. He births us, as it were. But he does it again. 
like Jesus said, it's a birth from above. Jesus actually never says, be born again, even though that's popular lingo. I grew up with that. He's literally saying, you need a birth from above. You need a birth from the Father. That's what you need. The Father's now our Father. You're saying it's not, not okay to say, one must be born again. Yeah, because that's not actually what Jesus says. He uses the word anothen there, and that word literally means from above. So it's a birth from the Father. And he uses, John uses the word anothen down below in the context, and he definitely means the one that is from above is what he says, not the one that's from again, talking about Christ being from above. When he's speaking to Nicodemus, that's what it translates. That's the word that he uses with Nicodemus, but in that same chapter, you just go down a few verses and down towards the end of John chapter 3, um, and I think it's John is speaking. He's, he's fast forwarding. He's, now we have John the Baptist, I, say, I should say. Not John the Gospel writer, but John the Baptist. And John um, the Baptist is saying, the one that is out of the earth is from the earth earthy. The one that is, that is out of, from heaven is, is not out of this world. And then he says, the one from above comes from above. And he uses that same adverb, anothen. So he's showing you, I think that's nice, that the Holy Spirit put that in there so that you and I know what he's talking about. So what he's really, is it, is it a new birth? Is it, is it a being born again? Yes, but that's not actually the verbiage Jesus is using. What Jesus is really saying is you need to be born from God the Father. He never says you're born from Christ. It says that the Spirit's the one that affects this, but the birth is always from the Father. And we have that in 1 John. Everyone having been born from God. So this is what he's talking about. He's talking about this new birth over here. And so when we're here in 1 Corinthians 13, when Christ is in you, this is we have Christ here in this, this case. And Jim was going over this. We could have just used Jim's thing, but I thought I'd leave that alone. I didn't want to mess that up for him. What do, what do you and I get because Christ is in us? Eternal life. Okay. So we get eternal life. We'll cheat and we'll just abbreviate. We get eternal life. But that eternal life, what did he say in John 17, 2? What does he say eternal life allows you to do? No. To know. To experientially know. To experientially know God. How does Paul, here in 1 Corinthians 2, 16, how does he describe that activity of knowing? You have... You have the mind of Christ. And it's interesting that the word mind in the Greek, it's the word nous. It's the word nous, and that is the base of the verb gin, and here, here it is, ginosko. I didn't do that right. Ginosko. Ginosko? I can't remember if it's Omega or See, I can't even remember. Right? Anybody want to check my Greek spelling? <laughs> but it's this part. Here, we'll just do it like this. Ginosko, there, then we, have, then we don't have the problem. But you see, this part right in here, that's what this is. These two are related. This is your experiential mind, and this is the act of experientially knowing. So when he's talking about the fact that we have the mind of Christ, he doesn't mean that you and I can sit around and think deep thoughts, that we can be smarter than the world's first-class engineers and philosophers. What he's saying with that word down there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is you actually have the ability to see that this truth that Paul is speaking with his mouth that he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 2, that you can appreciate that truth and go, that has value for me, rather than going, I don't know. I, I'm not so sure. 
I was talking to somebody the other day, and uh, there was a um, person that Peggy grew up with, and I and I know I've I've known this person also for for a long time, and we had a conversation, and I don't couldn't tell you how many years ago this was. We had this conversation, and this person, it's a she, told us, and she and and she she essentially told us she goes. The Bible's an okay book, but it's outdated, and it's certainly got stuff wrong. And so, and so we can kind of use it to jump off. But in the end, it's now I don't even think when Paul's talking in First Corinthians two, he's even talking about necessarily the entirety of the Bible. That I evaluate the entirety of the Bible. I think he's literally talking about evaluating the truths that God has planned for you and I as believers. That goes back to verse nine. It says, "Eye has not seen, neither has ear heard, or neither has it ever been arisen in your heart." Let's retranslate that for Ronnie, because <laughs> we were talking about that. You just asked that question a little oh, bit ago. But we might say, neither has man ever imagined, that's the idea, has it ever risen in the heart, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And I don't think he's talking about just the things rapture and after. I think it's even the things right now. I, I trust every one of you have had experience in your Christian life where God drops something in front of you. You, um, you meet this experience, this opportunity that God gives you, and you just, you just are relying on God in a way that you're just amazed by. And you just what everything that happens and the way it comes together, you walk away going, God, that was like 199, no, wait a second, 200% you. I couldn't have done a bit of that without you. And you just stand amazed at what you watch God do through you. You can't, you just can't get over it. You ever had, you ever had those experiences? And you're Usually just, it's an experience that's probably one of the hardest things you've had to go through. Sometimes it is, yeah. And sometimes, I, I, I'm going to tell you this, sometimes it's like, I, I had to apologize to my wife was it yesterday morning? Because we got up and we went out for a walk, and I was kind of grumpy on the first part of our walk. I told her I don't know exactly why I was grumpy, but I kind of woke up grumpy. And I, and I, after a while, I was like, I, this is ridiculous. I know how to change my attitude. And I started relating, and it, it changed. But use that as an illustration that I've had times where I am really out of sorts. I'm not thinking right. I'm just kind of, and everything's like this, and I'm not responding right, and I'm not doing things right. And I'm like, this is not the way God wants me to be. And I change my mind. But because of the way I've been acting, it's really easy for us to be human and think, well, now I've got to do like some penance or something because I was so bad, you know, the way I've been thinking and acting and such. And then all of a sudden, just within a short while, somebody calls you on the phone or you go downtown and you run into somebody. This has happened to me more than once. And I walk into the store and I bump into somebody. This isn't Josh. It's somebody else that comes and they've got a thing. And you stand there and talk with them for 20 minutes. I come home and Peggy goes, what were you doing? And I said, I ran into this person. And you started talking about this thing. And you just had this, this interaction doing this thing. And it's just like the person walks away going, man, I'm really glad I ran into you today. And I'm just going, and I'm walking away going, God, I can't believe you did that. Do you remember how I was acting an hour ago? And yet you still took me and you accomplished this. So this idea here of having the mind of Christ is that you can actually use that mind and direct it to these things that God's prepared for us. Some of them are going to be right now. And you can have this experience now. And when you're experiencing those things, you don't go and go, wow, that was amazing what I did. You're going to look at it and go, you know what? I just got to know the Father and the Son a little bit better. That's what you're really doing. It's John 17, 3. I just got to know the Father and the Son a little bit better. 
you're going, wow. And I don't know about you when you have those things. It's not like, boy, I hope I can have five more of those today. Sometimes for me, it's like, I, I really want to go to heaven now because I can't imagine if this is what it's like getting to know him now, I can't manage what it's going to be like to do that when I'm in their presence. And I'm not all messed up with the sin nature that gets in the way and the world and everything else. So let's go back to John 17. Unless somebody had a question. A belief, each believer's personal experience. Right. Is. Yes. Experiences. Yes. Yeah. Can I so, make a comment? Please do. I think the way it relates to both is specifically in the context, it's the hidden wisdom, which goes back to this, the mysteries. The mysteries are how the New Testament Christian matures, and every Christian matures differently because we have a different lineup of works that God has put up for us. So it's Specifically, the mysteries and us being able to think those thoughts and harmonize our minds with God's thoughts in regard to those. But then the way it becomes individualized is how that lines up with what God has you for you to do each day. And so that's how that... And then you're going to know God. It's the same God, but you're learning Him through different experiences, different works. And that's the individual part. That's right. Yeah, thank you. Very good. Very good. So back here in John chapter 17, in verse 22, he says, And the glory that I gave to you, and I'm, what I'm telling you is I believe that this glory that the Father gave to the Son, I don't think I read that right, the glory which you've given to me, I've given to them. That glory has to do with this eternal life. When you live out eternal life, that manifests something about God's character. You're showing something about God's opinion of who he is or his reputation. And you're showing, and people are getting to see that in human terms, just like Jesus did. He took this eternal life and he came down here and walked among us. And we got to see what God looks like when God walks in flesh and bones like we do. Real flesh and bones. Not just fake, not just fake flesh and bones. Remember, he showed up and ate with Abraham, but he didn't stick in that form. And he sat and he wrestled all night with Jacob, but he didn't stay in that form. And he met with Joshua before they took Jericho, but he didn't stay in that form. But when he came down here, he had a real spirit that could operate like ours. He had a real soul. And both of those could get troubled. You go into John, John chapter 11, with both in his spirit and in his soul. He, he got in his human nature, and it wasn't sinful. So he had a real spirit and soul response to, to what these people were doing and a real physical body. We, it's easy for us to relate to the body, but we miss the other part. So he shows us what this eternal life is like. And so he says, I've given that to them, but here's the purpose, that they might be one thing. Now this goes back to kind of what, um, what Josh is always uh, doing with, with, with this diagram, that when you and I as a believer... When we realize that we are this one thing in Christ, that we are the body of Christ up here, and we realize that we're up there in this, and when we, let's put it this way, if I'm setting my mind to this, and Josh is setting his mind to this, the two of us at that moment in time can actually both experience this exercise of eternal life down here, and there on a practical level, there is actually being worked out a oneness. I believe that this is, um, that's, I mean, this is the significance of why you have eternal life right now. It's, if you didn't have this, you could think about this all day long and you could never make this happen, ever. 
you could, you could try to get along. You could be like Israel. How wonderful it is when brothers live in unity. And they didn't do that very long or very well. Because sometimes you add your brothers and it's like, oh, those brothers in my way. And you're going to, I'm trying to remember the story in the book of Judges where the one guy comes down and I think he slays like 70 of his brothers, brings them down on a stump or a rock and kills. Can you imagine killing, you have a, I can't imagine having 70 brothers. I've probably got the wrong number, but and killing all of them or having them all killed. Anyway, but this is actually something that on a practical level can actually be being worked out in a limited way. But we're not done with this yet. This is, this, if we stop here, we're going to miss, I believe, the, the point that he wants to get at with this. So, uh, that they might be one thing even as we are one thing. In other words, the, well, who we are in Christ as one body actually can be worked out at moments in time. And I, I, I'm assuming that we have a number of people here at the church that actually do relate to each other like this because I, at least from my perspective, I think I actually see this happen at times. Maybe not the entirety of all of us because some days maybe I'm a little bit out of whack and so I'm not really part of the oneness, but I can see a bunch of other people that are. And you know one of the values of being together with other believers is that when you... <laughs> When you're not in that oneness and you see others that are, the Spirit's kind of saying, don't you want to be part of that party? Pardon me. Retranslation again. <laughs> don't you want to be part of that fellowship? Is it really fun being the kid that's sitting outside against the tree going, nobody wants to play with me? <laughs> You'd say, hey, I'd like to. And, and God uses that. Um, Jim and I have had this kind of, uh, this. It's going to cause me to digress for just a second here, but Jim and I have had this conversation several times about the brother in First or First Corinthians four. He says, "And put him out, turn him over to Satan." And I, boy, I've wrestled with that. But you know, it's actually over just the last couple months here that I think this has come together for me. And that is, when you put a person out, if if a believer is struggling with satanic attack, or struggling with their flesh, or struggling with the world. And it's something that's apparent. I mean, they're telling you, or you can obviously see it over here, okay? When they're with the body of Christ, what can the body of Christ do? Minister to them. They can minister to them. They can be encouraging them. Hey, did you forget who you are in Christ? Oh, we wouldn't say it like that. Hey, isn't it great to be seated at the Father's right hand, all of us knit together, all of us sharing in who we are in Christ? Having his kind of right. And we can do that when we're together with brothers and sisters in Christ. But you know what? If you kick somebody out of the church and they're not able to be in that fellowship, they don't have that. And it's not that the Holy Spirit can't tap them on the shoulder, but most of the time, the Holy Spirit's going to use the group of believers to encourage that person to get their mind back. So you turn them over out there, they're kind of they're they're not in the they're not in the sheep, they're not operating in the sheepfold anymore. They're out there in the devil's playground. And that's a messy and hard, nasty place to be. Okay, All you got to do is ask believers that have walked away from God for a while and they eventually come back and say, man, that was five years I don't want to repeat or ten years or whatever it is. But, it, but that all, that illustration, thinking about through that with Jim, that really is a practical reason why, this is one of the reasons why we really need fellowship with believers. And that doesn't mean you have to be here with this group here all the time, but it means you need to be with believers. Even if it, God allows you to be with believers in different places at different times. 
Okay. So verse 22. Glory which you've given to me, I've given to them, that they might be one even as we are one. Verse 23. I in them and you in me. See, so this is why we're saying this is regeneration. I'm in them, but you also are in me. No. Are you, this is, the, this is the next question in here. What do you get because Christ is in you? You get eternal life. What do you get because the Father's in you? You get a new nature. And you, the, the other way John expresses it is that you are a child of God. Yeah. I can look at, I can look at three of the Earth kids I can look at three of the Earth kids and I can say, they're all siblings. I don't want to hurt Kylie's feeling, but you know how that is. You have a family and you have the one child. They, they, have, they maybe look like one of the other parents, so they're sides of the family, you know. But you can see that. You see, a, you see that they have some of their parents' nature. Not only do they have physical, we were talking about this at the Thursday night Bible say last week, because it was really fun with uh, Nelsons that had eight kids and, and uh, Lowell's that had uh, five. And, t and talking about the fact, yeah, you have all these kids, and they inherit not just looks. I mean, if you see the Nelson boys, you can got Nelson, 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 Nelson. I mean, you can tell they look like Nelsons. But it's not just the looks. There's also characteristics that they inherit from you that are emotional, mental. And I don't know about you, but when my girls express my emotional and mental qualities sometimes, I'm sometimes those are the things I'm like, they got my looks, you know. Oh, Kate, I like that hefty beard you're getting. <laughs> I always tease the girls that way. Maybe you could have a beard like that. No. But, it's, but seriously, it's like, it's like the faulty parts of your, your emotions, the things in your emotions you tend to struggle with or the way you think. Those are the things that when you see your kids do those, those probably frustrate you more than, than places where they exhibit your spouse. That's my experience. But when we're born from the father, the father is... Is he a physical being? No. No. He's spirit. He's spirit. So what did we inherit from him? Spirit. Yeah, we inherited spiritual nature. We inherited, which is exactly, if we went back to John chapter 3, Jesus said, that which is born from the spirit is spirit. spirit. Yeah. So we've inherited, as Josh said, we inherit this new nature as, the, as a child of God. Now, what does that have to do why is, he putting the, why is he putting these two things together? I in them and you in me. Why is he putting that together with this, this issue when he says that they might be matured into one thing? How do these two go together here? Because they work in conjunction. Because they work in conjunction. Because the Father is in you. So let's say, oh, we have the Father right here. So the Father's in you. And he's technically, he's in the son, so he's in. This is the way he puts this. And so if you understand this then, because you're a, a son, or because, that's not right, because you're a child, because you're a child, you have this new nature. Okay. But what does this new nature, what does this new nature need? What does it need? It needs life. It needs life. And these two, this is, what the, this is the Holy Spirit's job now. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's taking this eternal life, this experience that you have, and who you are as a child with this new nature, and he puts that all together 
And on a practical level, he matures us. This is, Jesus is saying, this is a maturing process. He's teaching you more and more to let the Spirit bring these things together. And you do that by setting your mind on who you are here, but you're matured into one thing. In other words, again, it goes back to what we've said multiple times here. But when you set your mind to this, if you and another believer are doing this, he's actually maturing both of you into this oneness. Every time you do this, and every time you do this other believers, you're growing a little bit. You're gaining a little bit more experience with what it's actually experientially like, mind of Christ type thing again, to be a child of God, to actually know that you're his child. I not only look a little bit like my father, in fact, it's always amazing whenever we go back to green, I don't think this, but I have people that are saying, oh man, you're looking more and more like your dad. But that's not the only thing. They'll also say, oh man, you sound like your dad. I have people back there that I've talked with them on the phone and they're like, Tim, oh, you sound like your dad. You sound like Roger, you know? My wife says, no, I've had people, I've had people that I've called and they think that it was my dad calling. I never saw it, thought that. My sisters, it used to be when they would call, I would sometimes, they'd call me and before you had cell phones where you could see, oh, my mom's calling me or who it is. Sometimes I always thought it was my mom. Okay, especially my sister Christine. I always thought that she sounded a lot like my mom. We had those qualities. But then there's also things that I'm doing things, and my wife and my daughters are going, Dad, you're acting just like your dad. <laughs> you know, you start doing mannerisms. They, they, they see how you start, and I don't know, is it because I watch? I haven't been around him for the most of the last 30 years, so it's not like I'm copying that. But see, I, I get at the store lately, man, I met your brother yesterday, and they don't mean Ben. <laughs> they mean Stanton. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the significance of this word matured, or our Bibles say oftentimes perfected, what he's getting at here is that you and I as believers, as we're relating to this, and isn't it interesting that he back-to-back essentially goes over John 14, 20. We're both in the Father and in the Son, and the Father and Son are both in us. And the purpose, this is what it comes out to, is that we're actually matured into one thing. When you relate to this thing, you're actually growing. You're getting, you're maturing because you're gaining experience in how this is done. Every one of you in here knows what that's like when somebody gives you a new job, new task, they show you how to do it, and you're doing it. And when you're first doing it, well, unless you're at super bright, not like me, it, you're, you're kind of going, oh, am I doing this right? And you're alone, you know, and I don't know. And you're hoping they don't come around and look over your shoulder going, you're not doing it right. But pretty soon you're doing it. And after a day or so or a couple days or a few days, you're like, oh, you're just like you close your eyes and you can do whatever task you're doing. You know, you're maturing. Well, you are maturing in this experience. Now notice the thing he goes on to say here. So you're matured into one thing. But now here's the purpose in order that the world might know, experientially know, he says here, that you sent me and that you have loved them just as you loved me. Now, you may not agree with me on this, but whereas in the previous verse in 21 that the world might believe, while I think that that is primarily something that it can be experienced in the present tense, I think verse 23 is talking about something that is future. See, he's maturing us. 
He keeps doing this, but you know, eventually this is going to come to be that you and I are all going to be matured together. Everybody. And when that happens, there's going to be a time and place in which the world is actually going to experientially know, really know that the Father sent the Son and that He loved us just like He loved the Son. Turn with me over to Revelation, um, Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 2, let's go to verse 2 first. Chapter 2, I mean. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 26. And it says, And the one overcoming and keeping until the, keeping my works to the end, or guarding them, I will give to him authority over the nations. And he will shepherd them. That sounds good, shepherding. But notice, shepherd them with a rod of iron. Like the vessels of a potter, they're broken. That's kind of some rough. So in other words, what he's saying is, well, he says, even as I also receive from my father. But the point he's getting at is, you're going to be shepherding the nations. And this is interesting because this image of shepherding is used frequently for kings in the Old Testament. But you're not shepherding with just a wooden stick, wooden staff, which can be very hard, don't get me wrong. But you're going to do it with a rod of iron. And he says, you're going to shatter the nations like you'd shatter vessels of pottery. Now today, if you got every believer just on the face of the earth today, we don't even have to go back in history and collect believers, and you got all the believers today, and you collected all of us together into one place, and you asked us, what should we do about this situation or this situation? In fact, um, I think Tony, I think Tony was, was just telling us the other day, I think, I don't remember if it was Josh or uh, Tim was asking him about, oh, how was your wife's vacation? It was a little while back, a couple months back ago, that Christine went to Israel and was over there for 10 days or something like that. He says, oh, she had a good time. She got to go and see all these things. He tells all this. And, but he, then he made, he says, but, you know, it's one of those things you have to handle delicately because there are some people that he knows that when they found out she was going over or was over there, whatever the situation was, their comment was, well, I hope she gets a Palestinian perspective or the perspective of the Palestinians in this. In other words, he's saying there are some people that they know that aren't pro-Israel and they're kind of like, they're kind of negative towards Israel and kind of maybe, you know, maybe Israel's being mean to the Palestinians and stuff like that. Anyway, and I use that as an illustration that if you tried to get all believers on the face of the earth together in one place today, not glorified, just as we are, would we all agree on how things should be handled? Would we all agree on how a nation should be dealt with? No. We'd have a we'd have a 51-49 split. <laughs> or maybe maybe we'll have 20 different different kinds of votes. Who knows? I'd say it this way. Have you always had the same viewpoint yourself? Yeah, yeah. Just look at your own self. You've changed. You know? That's right. So when he's talking about this, when he's talking about us judging and talking about us all being matured into one thing, one of the results is that going to be it's going to be is that when he finishes our salvation and we're in his presence and we really are matured into one, 
We're not, Josh and I are going to be up there in heaven bickering. No, I think they ought to do it this way. No, it ought to be this way. And then we're whacking each other with those iron rods. We're not going to be doing that. That'd be little, little boys that do that. Adult men would never do that. But uh, you get the point? We're not going to do that. And I don't think, there's, and there's not going to be anybody that's in there going, oh, I don't really think we should, but I'm going to go along with everybody else. Just like apparently when we voted here on starting at, 9 and 10 o'clock on Sundays. Apparently, some people didn't voice their concerns as much as others. But, you know, this is just kind of, it's not going to happen out there in the future. Look at another one here. Well, there's a, and we could go back. I'm not going to take you over there. We could go to 1 Corinthians 6. We judge world and angels. It's going to be the same thing. I don't think that there's, we're not going to have stragglers that are going along, but they don't really want to. Um, I turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, and look with me at verse, um, verses 8 and 9. I know your works. This is the Philadelphian church. Behold, I have given before you a door that is opened, which no one is able to shut, shut it, because you have a little strength. You know, he criticizes every church. He never has a criticism for this church. He never once says of the Philadelphian church, but I have something against you. He actually says, I've given you an open door because you don't have a lot of strength. I listened to a preacher from the West Side um, six or seven years ago, and he says, he says, we ought to only be working in metropolitan areas because that's where God will get stuff done. And I'm just thinking, you know, he says right here, you have a little strength, God's still going to give you open doors. And so because you have little strength and you have kept, you have guarded my word and you have not denied my name, behold, I'm going to give those or some of those out of the synagogue of Satan. And I believe the reason that we have this out of the synagogue of Satan means not everybody that was in that synagogue of Satan in this city that were a problem to this church, I don't think all of them were unbelievers. I would say the majority of them were, but apparently there were a few that weren't. So it's some out of that synagogue of Satan, the ones that declare themselves to be Jews and are not, but they lie. Behold, I'm going to make them come and they will worship before your feet that they might know that I loved you. I think all of you have been over this before, but just picture it this way. Jesus is sitting on his throne. Those people come before him. They're not worshiping us. They're falling down and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. But who's with him? His bride. His bride. He's sitting on his throne with his bride, and that's us. So as they fall down to worship him, they're falling down before us, he says. He doesn't say they're worshiping us. It's very plain. They're not worshiping, but we're there. But when they see us with him while he's judging them, he says, they will know that I loved you. Now, John's statement, or Jesus' statement in John 17, he says, is that the world's going to know also that the Father loved you just as the Father loved the Son. He adds another element that Jesus does not add when he speaks to this church. But that's going to come when we're united. It's not like, it's not like, I'll pick up my daughter Katie. I think the first year we were here, we were given from our bank a free family photo. We got to set us time. We got to go downtown to the bank for a free family photo. We got the girls all dressed up. Emily's kind of a little gal, but we get all dressed up. We get down there. We don't, to this day, we still don't know what happened. She just broke down. We get in there to take a picture, and she's just like, we couldn't get her to straighten up and smile for anything. She's five years old. What's the matter with you? <laughs> you know? 
That's not going to be, I, I'm using that as an example. So that's not going to happen here where you got all these Christians and they look up and we're all sitting up there and we're enjoying being with Christ, but then they look down there and there's Tim going. I wanted to go to the park today. <laughs> You're not going to have that. They're going to see us all mature. This is happening right now on small levels between believers, but this is ultimately going to be fulfilled so that the whole world will know that the Father loved us just as he loved the Son. And as Jesus says here, they're going to know that I loved you. Is that an incredible thing to leave with these 11 disciples as he's getting ready to go to the cross and then eventually depart for them to stop and say, there's a day coming that the world's going to know that he loved us. Yes? I was just thinking, that seems a little easier to understand when you think about the fact that when, <clears throat> when we are raptured and, and then we're glorified, and then we will all have no sin nature, and we're glorified, that we're all going to have, we're all going to think the right thoughts and do the right things, and we really will have the mind of Christ. Yeah. yeah. I mean, always. Right, right. Yep. Anybody else have anything to add or ask? There's another verse here in chapter 3, verse 21. We're going to be sitting on the throne with him. <laughs> That's another one, and they're going to see that. They're going to witness us on that throne. So, anybody else? Hopefully that encourages you to stop and just think about how Jesus just kind of puts this whole, we keep talking about this, the way this Christian life works. We're in, we're in the Godhead, the, just like Jim went over. We're in Godhead, the Godhead's in us. You should talk about us being in Christ because that's the predominant thing that is emphasized. But the practical point of this is this is what he's using to mature us. And he is maturing us right now. Even those believers you do not think that he's working in their life because you're going, I don't see much going on. Believe it or not, God's still faithfully working in them. Their maturing process may be a little bit more of a skyrocket than mine will be or yours will be, but it's all going to be pretty amazing when it happens at the end. Most of us are still going to be, there's going to be a big change. But uh, yes, Josh. So back in 1723. Yes. Um, just throw this out. I don't know if you've considered it or not. So it says, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me. Okay? And hast loved them. So if you take that to be the near antecedent going to the world, then it would be like, like he sent the son and showed his love when he sent the son. But if it, the them is going back to believers, the far antecedent, then it might be um, the way he loved the son was he gave him a commandment and then the son did it, right? Mm -hmm. And so then the commandment, the way he loved us might be instructions that he's given the believer to do. He's given us something to do, which is to utilize that glory, utilize that life, and grow. Mm -hmm. And so that is an act of love that he's given us a purpose. So I don't know. That's like Well, and I I mean obviously if it says if he loved us, it didn't just mean he sat up there and had was starry eyed and had warm, fuzzy feelings towards us. Yeah. It definitely means he's doing something. And yeah. well, so so everything you're saying he loved 
does. And everything you're saying really goes with what he was teaching these guys about learning to abide above and then how that work, how that would work out in, in their practice. So yeah, that's good. So, Thank you. So, so that, so, that the, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. them. What's the them you said? The them go to, to verse 23. I and them and thou and me. The I and them in verse 23 is not the world. Right. Right. Okay. So okay. a lot of people read that. Yeah. They're reading the them is the world in verse really? 23. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Like no, that, that plainly has to be. Believers, I, I, I missed what you were getting at that point. I'm sorry. Okay. And now it just clicked here as you were answering her question. That part of it, yes. Yeah. It's not John 3.16 being rewritten. No, no. So does everybody understand what Josh is saying? The them in verse 23 goes back to what he was talking about before. The group of people that he says that you gave to me. So what the world the world is recognizing that he loved these believers. They loved them. That's what he's talking about. Yeah, I think Josh made that probably plainer than I didn't get it right off the bat. So you probably picked it up. I'm sometimes a little slow, but okay. Thank you. If there's nothing else. Pause this.